Good morning. Great to see everybody. Today, as Derek said, we're closing down Wonder Women of the Bible, and we're going to end with a big bang with uh, Deborah. The message is entitled, Who Needs a Man? Can I get an amen on that? Who needs a man? Anybody? That's what we're going to talk about today. Before I jump into uh, Deborah and that exciting topic of who needs a man, uh, I need your help. On September the 27th and on October the 4th, we are going to do two messages, two services, and uh, they're going to be focused on this. So why get married and why stay married? Why get married and why stay married? And I need help from those people who are here who are not married at this time. Uh, for, if you're a single guy or a single girl, I would like to sit down in a forum with you, guys and girls separate, and I want to hear your observations and your thoughts about marriage. Uh, just, you know, it's good things, bad things. I just want to know what the, what the lowdown is. So here's the thing. The only way for this message, in my opinion, to these messages to be successful is to actually have this forum and to get some feedback from you. So on Tuesday... September the 15th, that is a week from this Tuesday, Tuesday, September the 15th, from 7 to 8.15 with all the ladies at the church office, just me and all the ladies at the church office, and then at 8.15, the guys, and we're just going to have this forum, and so what's going to happen is, uh, and I'm hoping, a, I'm hoping a bunch of you will show up, really, because if just like one or two walk and I'm not going to get a full, you know, get the full picture, right? Uh, you'll be able to have anonymously have a major impact on these two services that we're doing. So I really, really, really value your help. Please consider showing up. And if you can remember to rip off your Connect card and drop me a note and say, hey, I'm going to come. Or you can shoot me an email and say, I'm going to come. That would really be helpful. Then I'll have to know know which room to plan on for that day. All right? So I I greatly appreciate that. It's Tuesday, September the 15th. 7 to 8.15 for the ladies and 8.15 to 9.30 for the guys. And it'll be coming in a broadcast email to remind you as well. So thank you very much. All right, now to Deborah, uh, Wonder Woman of the Bible. Well, things were in bad shape in Deborah's day. Uh, They were dark days when uh, Deborah was kind of leading. She was what is known in the book of Judges. There's only two chapters that you find about Deborah, but they're A very exciting read. If you'll take the time to read those two chapters, Judges chapters 4 and 5, excellent read about what was going on in the days of uh, of Deborah and what she was kind of dealing with. She was a judge. She was the fourth judge that's listed in the book of Judges. Things were morally, spiritually, politically, financially, they were bad. They were wrong. Things were going bad. Deborah tells us herself in Judges chapter 5, verse number 7, that actually village life had ceased in those days that she was living. In other words, what is that saying to us? That relationships were completely blown apart. That community had broken down. Chaos was reigning so badly that village life had totally ceased. Now, what we get from that is that family life had ceased. All that community aspect, relationships, things had just fallen completely apart. And that is a glimpse of what was going on. If you read the entire book of Judges, you see that it is a nation in total chaos. In my opinion, the sickest story that you'll read in all the Bible is contained in Judges chapter 19. I thought about telling it to you, but it made me so sick just thinking about it that I can't do that. If you want to read it, it's in Judges chapter 19. It's terrible. And it's a picture of a society that was at the depths of despair. At the depths of despair. 
And these are the days that Deborah lived. Now, what I'd like to try to do here for a few moments is to try to put Deborah in some kind of context. Where does she come into this whole grand scheme of things? Well, many of us have heard of Moses. Moses is a very popular figure in the Old Testament. So we have Moses, and he is living in Egypt. And then he decides after his first 40 years living in Egypt that he's going to go out to the desert all by himself and spend 40 years out there. If you know the story, you know what I'm talking about. So 40 years in Egypt, living as a royalty, living as a prince in Egypt. His next 40 years, he lives, he goes out all alone into the desert. Then he comes back after that 40 years. He's 80 years old. And then he decides to go back out to the desert again for his last 40 years with two million of his best friends. So he leads the nation of Israel out into the desert for 40 years. They get up to crossing the Jordan River. God says, your days are done. Moses, you're going to die. Now, while Moses was in charge and leading the, leading the whole nation, things went relatively well. Yes, they did have some problems. They had some things that didn't go well from time to time. But by and large, things went well. He died. Joshua takes over. Joshua was a great leader. Right, you know, cut right from the same cloth that Moses was. So he led the people. He led them well. Things went well, right? And Joshua's famous verse is, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And that's the way that he kind of led Israel. Now, then here we get to the book of Judges. Because as you read in the opening chapter of the book of Judges, realize now that Joshua, he served his time and he dies. So he dies and there's this vacuum of leadership. Not that there wasn't any leader, but there wasn't any godly leader. It wasn't like a good leader who rose up. So they don't, they don't have a leader. And things started to really get bad. They started to go downhill. And they got deplorable. And it went for year after year after year. Until finally it says, the Israelites cry out to God, Oh God, help us. And then we're told, what does God do? God sends a leader. And the leader lives and he's a good leader. He's a godly leader. Or she, he and she. There's he's and she's. And the judges, they're, they're a good leader. They're a godly leader. And things get better. And then they die. And things get worse. And they get really bad. And the people cry out to God. And what does God do? God sends a leader. That's good. The answer is God sends another leader. Everything as you read through the Bible rises and falls when somebody who is a leader who will lead well in a good way, in a godly way, according to the principles of the Bible. And so things get really bad. They cry out. God sends a leader. Things get better. The leader dies. And then what happens? Things get really bad. So they cry out for help. And when they cry out for help, what does God do? God sends a leader, and things get better. And then that leader lives and he dies, right? And then psh, things get bad, and then they cry out to God, and what does God do? God sends a leader, and the fourth leader is Deborah. Now, we're told this in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1. Paul says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. What is the example of Jesus Christ? It is an example that we find even Deborah living out in her own life. I want to look at an important, some important features that we see in the life of Deborah this morning and how she lived her life and how she led. And I hope you'll see that it's very important that we try to, as well, as Paul tries to follow the example of Christ, what he sees in Christ, Deborah, living even before the time of Christ, who embodies these same things, and who leads, and who leads so well in her day. I want to touch on a subject this morning that we are going to talk a whole lot more about in the fall. So we're only going to scratch the surface of this. But I want us to begin to get our minds rolling on this. 
to begin to turn the wheels in our head about this subject that we're going to talk about this morning, I think it is critically important to our world and to our life and as followers of Christ and as people and as a nation and as a whole globe. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, so much for your word. We thank you for the amazing stories and people that we read about in it. Help us, Lord God, to to hear what maybe you would have to say to us this morning. In Christ's name, amen. If you like to fill in the blanks, here's the first one I'd like you to write down. There's only two today, and that is to grab on to truth. To grab on to truth. Now, the first thing you might be thinking when you hear that, grab on to truth, you might be thinking, well, what truth? Or whose truth? Who sets the standard for truth? Where does that come? You know, the Bible sets itself up as the standard for truth. Now, it doesn't try to say that there isn't other truth that exists in this world outside of this book. It doesn't try to do that. Though sometimes some people kind of muddy the waters with that. It doesn't try to say it's the only truth in the world, but what it, what it does say clearly, it is, it is the standard. In other words, when you're trying to measure something in the world about truth, that it has to measure up against the standard, and that's the standard of the Bible. Now, we find in Judges 4.4, I want to go through the story of Deborah a little bit. We're told this, that Deborah was a prophetess, and she was leading Israel at the time. We learned this last week in talking about Anna. What does it mean to be a prophetess? Prophetess was somebody who really knew the Bible. I mean, they didn't just read the Bible. They actually studied the Bible to really think deeply about what is the message of the Bible. One of the problems we get into in our world is when people just read the Bible and they go off and they espouse all of these ideas without having a thorough understanding of what is the spirit of these words in this book. And so Deborah understood that. She dug down into that. She grasped a hold of the Bible. This is, this is what she did. She was a prophet. She's a teacher. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, just before the days of Deborah, Moses writes about these four guiding principles that we should all follow by. The number one thing was this, is that we should serve God first. Deuteronomy chapter 6 covers all of these four principles. It says, number one, serve God first. Like, make God the priority of your life. The second guiding principle is this, that we should know the Bible so well that we can even teach it to children. We should study and know the Bible so well we can teach it to children. The third guiding principle is we should always show gratitude for God. We should never take God for granted. We should always show gratitude to God. And the fourth guiding principle is we shouldn't get involved in the ungodly practices of our neighbors. How many of us have ungodly neighbors that just, you know, their practices just make us go crazy all the time? We shouldn't do that. These are the four guiding principles we find. And we see that Deborah is doing her best to follow after them as you read her story. Now, how do you make decisions? How do you make decisions in your own life about what is right and wrong? By what standard do you make those decisions? We read a very telling verse in the book of Judges, Judges 21-25. It's listed at the bottom of your outline. And it tells us the story of a community that, that was on, well, not even on the brink of disaster, had already gone over the edge into disaster. And what does it say? That everybody did what was right in whose eyes? In their own eyes. So they had set themselves up as their own standard for what was right and wrong. Their own standard. Well, you know, 
that's good for you, that's good. If it's good for me, it's good. I, you know, I'll make the decision what's right for me. You make the decisions what's right for you. Again, what we find over and over in the Bible is it says, okay, you've got to run all that through this. That this is like the gold standard for what's right and wrong. And then you make decisions and you run them off of this. But when everybody begins to make decisions based on, hey, this is what I think, this is, this is what I feel, and you've got to do what you think and you, well, you've got to feel, then what you end up in is the book of Judges in a nation where things are in total chaos. Grab a hold of the truth. This is what Deborah did. Here's the second thing that she did. Grab on to grace. Grab on to grace. Let's read more of her story. Verse number 5 all the way through 9, it says, She used to sit under the palm of Deborah. She had, she had a whole palm tree named after her, which is just excellent. Between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites came to her for judgment. What does that mean? It means the whole community is coming to her for judgment because she had wisdom. Where is that wisdom coming from? Where is it coming from? She sent and summoned Barak, son of Abinam. It's tough on these names. From Kadesh and Naphtali and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go take position at Mount Tabor, bringing 10,000 men from the tribe of Naphtali and the tribe of Zebulon, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army. Let me just stop right there real quick. Let me tell you a little bit, in de- a little more detail, about what's going on in the days of Deborah. They were being cruelly oppressed, we're told, at the beginning of chapter 4 of Judges. Cruelly oppressed by the Canaanites and this king, Jabin, and this general who really seems to be the power behind the throne, Sisera. Cruelly oppressed. All, he's doing all kinds of terrible things against them. And so Deborah sends for apparently this Israeli general, uh, Barak, and says, you know, uh, come on, because it's time to go to war. All right, let's pick it up again. Uh, midway through verse 7. Uh, Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the Wadi Kishon, near the Kishon River, with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him, him into your hand. Now, here's what Barak, the general, says. This is, says there, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. You know what's interesting in this guy's name, Barak? You know what it means? You see how he hesitates here when she says, All right, I want you to go do this. You know, he's like, go. This is God speaking. You know what his name means? Lightning. Lightning. Isn't that so ironic? He's anything but lightning. We've got, you know, when somebody has a name and it means something, you know, their life should kind of match up to, to what that is. Right next to the church office, there's a, an apartment building, and there's a dog in there, and it's a bulldog, and he weighs about 100-some pounds. And um, he's just huge. His name is Butch. It's not lightning. It's Butch. And he looks like a Butch. And Butch's owner, she weighs about 100 pounds, and we see her sometimes just standing on the sidewalk holding the leash, and Butch is laying down. You know why she's standing there for five or ten minutes? Butch ain't moving. And because she weighs about the same as he, there's nothing she can do about it. So we come out of the office and say, hey, how you doing? She's doing good. He's not moving. (laughs) This guy's name was Lightning, and he was anything but Lightning. Anything but Lightning. 
Oh, we're told something else. Another piece of information I want to give to you before I tell you the rest of this story, which is actually an amazing story. We're told in Judges chapter 5 that Deborah tells us this herself. He says, she rose up like a mother. She rose up like a mother in that society over the people. She mother, was mothering the people. Now listen. In a male-dominated society, everybody, which they were in, let's be clear, in a male-dominated society, to have a female leader was humiliating. Completely humiliating. For a woman to get credit for a war or a battle that is won was even more humiliating. And this is exactly what's going on here. Now, what is clear as you read this story is that God is treating this nation like they are little kids. You're going to get that picture clear in just a few moments. Treating them as if they're little kids. Now, one other thought before I tell you this story. Who extends grace to somebody who has been convicted of a crime all the way to the end? Like when somebody commits some crime and everybody else turns their back on them, who is the last person standing with them as they march their way to the execution? The mother. The mother. Because the mother is always ready to extend grace when everybody else has said grace is done. Now, keep that in mind. Let me tell you the story of Deborah. So Deborah, as we've already said, you know, she's this judge. She rises up and she tells, she tells this army leader, this general, Barak, you know, go to war. And I'm going to draw out the Canaanites and you're going to have this victory. He says, I'm not going unless you go with me. I got to take Mama with me so I feel safe. So Mama, if you'll come, I'll go. And she says, okay, but the credit for the victory is going to go to a woman. He says, oh, whatever, but you're coming with me. So they go. And time comes for them to head down into this valley for war. Now, here's the thing which you need to know is that the people they were going up against, this, this uh, Sisera, the general of the, of the Canaanite uh, army, had 900 iron chariots. 900 iron chariots. That's a big deal. That's like, you know, having tanks when the other people just have foot soldiers or something like that. So they're running around in these tanks. And there's no hope because they have these 900 iron chariots. And so she says, go out, show yourself in the valley. Well, you're sitting ducks. You've got this big valley, right? Not up on the mountainside. You're in the valley with the, with the little tanks so that iron chariots can just roam and just have free reign. And they'll be just pick them apart like crazy. So Israel is about ready to be slaughtered. Well, he's scared, but she commands him. And so finally he acquiesces and he goes out into the valley. Now, they get out there. They're ready for battle. Something very strange happens. A surprise rainstorm just comes in and floods the valley. The Kishon River, it overflows, and the valley they're in becomes a sea of mud. What happens to the chariots? They can't move. They're all stuck. Oh, my gosh. So here you have this army, the 900 chariots, and you've got 10,000 Israeli foot soldiers come in, and they just pick them off, and they slaughter them. So this general, Sisera, the Canaanite general, he escapes on foot, and he goes running, and he runs you know, as far as he can go, and he's completely worn out, and he comes across this tent. It's the tent of Heber the Kenanite. Heber, H-E-B-E-R, the Kenanite. The Kenite, Kenite, yes. Now, who is this guy, Heber? Kenites. Kenites are relatives of Moses. What side do you think the Kenites are going to fall on in this battle between the Canaanites and the Israelites, right? They're going to fall with the Israelites, right? Because they're relatives of Moses. Well, every single one, well, most of them, all, they sided with Moses. They sided with Moses. But this guy, Heber, 
sided with the Canaanites. He was on friendly terms with the Canaanites. I wonder why he did that. You know what we learn about Heber? He was a master at working with iron. Iron. I wonder why he was friends with the Canaanites in their 900 iron chariots. So what we have is we have this guy Heber who sells out for finances and he sides with the enemy. He leaves all of his relatives behind. He takes his family, and he's working on these chariots, and he's gathering money for doing it, and everything's okay because the bottom line, the money wins out, right? So here comes Sisera. He comes up on this tent, and Heber's not there, but Heber's wife is, and her name is Jael, J-A-E-L, Jael. Now, here we go. Ready for the mothering thing? So he comes in. He's tired. He's worn out. He says, you got to hide me. Can you hide me anywhere? And she says, sure. Come on into my tent. And he felt safe because there was friendly relationships between, you know, you know her family and the Canaanites. So he comes on. He says, I'm, I'm dying of thirst. Can you get me some water to drink? She says, oh, it's, it's okay. Lay down here, and I'm going to cover you with a blanket. And instead of, instead of water, she goes and gets him milk, gets him some nice warm milk. Are you getting the imagery of this thing? Puts him down, tucks him in with the blanket, this big, mean, military guy, right? Tucks him with the blanket, gives him the milk, and then he says this. This is so cool. Literally, in the Hebrew, it says this. He says this to her. It says, if anybody comes by and says, is there a man here, tell him no. I wonder what the message God is actually trying to send in this story. It's absolutely fascinating. So she says, no problem. There's no man here. No man in this camp. He goes fast asleep. He's dreaming. He's having pleasant dreams of milk and blankets and stuff like that. Now, here's another piece of information I need to tell you. Back in those days, the women were the ones that put the tents up. So when they moved from place to place, the women would put the tents up. They would, you know, get the tent pegs and they hammer, boom, they put the tents up and the guys would go out and they'd do something else. But it was the women's job to put it up. So he's sit, dreaming nicely. And while he's sound asleep, she goes and gets one of those tent pegs and she gets her hammer, that she, the one that, her favorite hammer, the one she loves so much. And she gets it and she walks up over next to him and she puts it right up on his skull and she just drives it straight through his head. Whoa, now that's a tough woman. Is that pretty cool or what? And that's how the victory, that's how the victory went to a woman in this battle. Um, here's what I want, simply want to say. For some reason, it is very difficult for us to hold simultaneously these two very important things, truth and grace. We seem to pull one or the other, like we're drawn to truth or we're drawn to grace. But we have a hard time holding both of them at the exact same time. Deborah did it, and it made her a powerfully effective leader. Somebody else did it. Jesus Christ did it. He held these two things. In John 1.14, it says these, and we need to, and this is where I'm saying I can't get into all of this, all the ramifications of this,
But I want you to begin to think about this because we're going to talk about this this fall. This is what it says about Jesus. The Word became flesh. Jesus Christ became flesh, the Word. And He made His dwelling among, among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only. Now here it comes. Who came from the Father full of grace and truth. He didn't come from the Father full of truth. He didn't come from the Father full of grace. He came from the Father full of grace and truth simultaneously holding those two things together. Uh, when, 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 when I am exposed to somebody who is just holding truth, you know, when I get around people who just, like, they're all into truth, but forget the grace, like, I can only hold one thing at a time, right? Like, men who can only do one thing at a time, right? Just with the one thing, but the truth. I feel a lot of times like um, I'm being attacked. Particularly if I'm not, like, synced up with them in some way. Every time I hear somebody say these words, do you know Jesus? I cringe. I do. I do. Do you know Jesus? You know what? Uh, it's getting ready to happen. Next thing. Usually, my experience. You know Jesus? It's arrogance, self-righteousness, and condemnation. It's about ready to flow. It's about ready to flow. I believe in the truth of knowing Jesus. Okay? Does that make sense? Whole, I'm brace it. I'm all about it. Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. I fully embrace that, everybody. You've got to know that. I completely reject the arrogance and the self-righteousness that just, just pours out. from people sometimes who present that. It, and it just drives me absolutely nuts. For people who believe, who will say that, who hold on to that truth, and there's a million other things we could go into, all right? Other, other topics, right? But if people hold on to that, they all believe, like me, that we're all sinners. We're all sinners, undeserving of a Savior, and bound for hell. But for the grace of God, the grace of Jesus Christ, who's come and saved me, that I have hope. And if it wasn't for that, I would not have hope. Now here's the reality. Here's the reality. For people who only embrace truth and hold on that one so strongly, so powerfully, right? A lot of times, for those people who can only hold on truth and can't hold grace at the same time, they come across so arrogant and abrasive. It's just, if we really, think about this, everybody, for a second. If we really believe that Jesus Christ is the only way and He is our only hope, wouldn't it be really hard for all of us to even raise our head out of just being humbled by that? Wouldn't it be hard for us to even raise our heads and say, my God, thank you. I can't believe you have done this for me, Jesus. So why does the attitude come across this way? You're going to hell. What is it? What's the deal? Whoa, oh, what happened? Here's the problem for people who come across abrasive and they're just holding on to the truth. They really don't fully embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. Oh, they say they do, but they don't. Because if they did, they'd be like totally humble, right? Really. We have to embrace truth and grace all at once. Now, here's the other side of the coin. 
What about the person who's just all about the grace? Woo! Grace. Just love the grace. Man, it's whatever. It's what, I just want you to be happy. Just love you. Yeah, it's okay. It's all right. The book of Judges. Read it. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. It was all about grace. There was no standard of truth. There was no embracing of this. It was all grace. And it is a picture of a community in disaster. You can't have all grace, everybody. That is a sick society. The stuff that happens in Judges is deplorable because there was no standard of truth. It was all whatever. Just let it all go. It doesn't make sense. That's like to have all grace is like telling a room full of kids, express yourself in any way you want. Woo! Go! Do you think you can teach school that way? Do you think you can have any kind of order? You know, what if we taught our schools that way? Hey, everybody just come in. Let's just whatever you want to do. You know, there's a great story. I think it was about 10 years ago I heard about it. Um, Stanford University. There's a guy out in Stanford. Who, you know, that area of the world. I'm not saying anything if you're from that area of the world. I'm not saying anything. I'm just saying. I'm not saying anything, but I'm just saying. All right? It's all about, you know, freedom. Freedom of expression. These shouldn't be rules. If I have rules for my life, I can't impose them on somebody else, right? They're my rules, right? And there's no general standard of rules. You would think a university like that, if they really embrace that, then everybody just gets an A or everybody gets to choose their own grade. Anyway, there was a guy who, for him, the way he wanted to express himself, he says, I don't want to wear any clothes. I don't wear any clothes. He would go to class naked. Man was walking around naked. And people said, he should be allowed to do that. He should be allowed to express himself. Who says that that's wrong? Who can say that's wrong? And it was great. Everybody was applauded and loved it. The only problem they had is that, um, you know, the classes he was in, Nobody wanted to sit in the seat that he had just got up from for some reason. It, was, it caused a major wrinkle in, in the whole deal. But it's absolute pandemonium. I, um, I read this story out of Parade Magazine a couple weeks ago about Brad Pitt. Now, I know very little of his life, so I'm not trying to say, oh, let me analyze Brad Pitt. This is not what I'm doing at all. It's just a brief story. But in the story, it says that he was raised in a very conservative Christian home, a very conservative Christian home. And uh, it just happened to note that through the story. And then it went all through his life and, I guess, uh, who he's married to and their kids and did all this kind of stuff. And it got to the end of the story. And the writer said at one point of the story is the only point that he saw Brad Pitt, like, get totally exercised. He got out of his seat and was kind of getting red in the face and was getting angry. He was getting angry. And you know what it was about? It was, it was about the same thing we're talking about right now. He said, people are, like picketing me on TV and writing, you know, stuff about me and things that, you know, uh, Angelina, is it right? Angelina Jolie, we're not married. They're not married. This is wrong. You can't do it. You're living in sin. You're going to hell. And as I read the story, what became so clear to me, I'm thinking, again, I'm not, I don't know his whole deal. Uh, I wonder how many times he was exposed to truth void of any grace whatsoever. And he had such a heightened sensitivity to it. It's unbelievable. How many of us in this room, everybody, how many of us in this room know somebody or our own lives and we are completely turned off of the truth because of the way the truth was presented to us at some point? There's nothing wrong with the truth. But we don't want any part of that truth because it sickens us the way that truth was presented to us. I think about that. 
I read a cool story um, last week about a church. Uh, this church uh, decided to uh, make a stand in, in their community, and um, the stand that they made really offended the uh, homosexual community that was around the church. And so uh, offended them so much that they showed up outside of their church with signs, and they were angry, and they were yelling, and it got really tense. And so the church decided, uh, you know, God, what, you know, what should we do? And so they decided on this Sunday morning with all this tension going on outside, they decided to go outside and to bring them coffee and to bring them donuts and to say, we're sorry, we, we, we don't mean to make you angry. We stand by what our stance is, but can we talk? And things were really rough in the beginning, but eventually it calmed down and they started to enter a dialogue. They kind of got to know each other a little bit. And things calm way down. Now, a bunch of truth people, people who can only embrace this void of grace, heard about what was going on at the church and they said, hey, let's all jump in our cars and go over and support the church for standing up for the truth. Let's go support them. And so, man, they're all riled up and they go over to support and they show up and then here's the church and they're having coffee and donuts and they're like, whoa, what is going on here? So the truth people decided to show up the next week and picket the church for standing up for grace. So the church got picketed for truth one week and grace for the next week. Why can't we hold both at the same time? What would happen if we held both at the same time? You know, there is truth. I fully believe it. I, mean, I really do. I fully, 100% believe it. But I believe if that truth is given in such a way, void of grace, that it's probably one of the biggest turnoffs to God and Jesus Christ that could ever possibly exist. I believe the church is responsible for turning more people away from Jesus Christ than anything else on the planet. Because we must embrace truth and grace. We can't just embrace grace. And we can't just embrace truth. We must embrace both at the same time. And how many of us here this morning we need to experience grace and truth here right now. Some of us are going through some things this morning, and we need both of them, and we need them now. We need the healing touch of Jesus Christ who came full of grace and full of truth simultaneously, and we need his touch on our life to bring healing. God wants to do it. He wants to do it in a very special way. Ryan's going to come up. He's going to close us with a song. Prayer team's going to be up front. You want somebody to pray with you along those lines. They're here to pray with you. But I encourage you to think about this. To think about Deborah, who led so well, full of grace and truth. And to think about our example, Jesus Christ, who came to this world to heal it, full of grace and full of truth. And also think about, is it possible, is it possible that you and I could embrace both at the exact same time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you, God, for your love and for your patience. God, I am completely humbled by what you have done for me and for this entire world, Jesus. Completely humbled. God, help us to be people Help us to be a community that holds to the truth of your word. 
and at the exact same time is filled with your grace. Father, for those of us here who maybe were hurting this morning because we were exposed to truth void of grace, or we have experienced a bunch of grace without any truth in it, and we're in chaos. God, I pray for those of us here who are wounded, like me. I've been wounded. I pray, God, your healing, helping hand upon each one of us. God, extend your hand into this room this morning and work a miracle in our lives. Help us, Lord, in Jesus' name.